If you're good at something, never do it for free. You're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. I bought you. <laughs> Welcome back. We are the Podfellas, and thanks for listening to our entertainment podcast. I'm Myron, and joining me each week is Will. How's it going? Each week, we'll provide a film or TV review, followed by a deeper dive into a related topic. However, this week is the very last week of 2019, yes. and Will and I wanted to discuss our top 10 films of the year. So here's how we're going to do it. Our list will be broken up into two separate episodes. In the first episode, we will discuss films 10 through 6, and the following podcast, we'll go through films 5 through 1. And of course, just to have some fun interspersed throughout the episodes, we will be presenting a few end-of-the-year awards for our favorite moments and performances of the year. And of course, joining us once again for these two episodes is our good friend, Steve-O Chang. How's it going, Steve-O? Yo, thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah, so we're, it's so good to have you back. Um, we had so much fun uh, doing a review of Marriage Story and Parasite. We thought we scared you away, but uh, I guess you're back <laughs> for some more punishment. So happy to have you. Nah, Thanks, Steve yeah, I had to get away us, from right? my family over the holidays, so it was a great way to do it. <laughs> I just wanted to let everyone know that our podcast can be found on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, as well as Spotify. So if you have any friends out there that are asking how they can listen to our podcast, you can go ahead and point them in those directions. We also have an email, so if you have any thoughts, comments, drop us a line at thepodfellaspodcast at gmail.com. So before we go ahead and move into our top 10, I wanted to uh, just kind of take a look back at the year that was 2019. So 2019, of course, was the year where MCU reigns supreme, culminating in the Avengers. A lot of great uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe movies came out. Um, what are your guys' thoughts? I, I loved it. I love that um, we were getting past the, you know, the Infinity War stuff, the end games uh, that it was ending and like getting into, um, what is it, stage four now? That's really interesting. It feels like they're bringing out a lot of more characters that are more diverse. And so yeah. that's always exciting. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, you know, it's like we said goodbye to some really key uh, characters. So I feel like uh, they're going to have to introduce new ones. And, you know, we're going to have to love them just as much to kind of keep this ball rolling. So, you know, hopefully Marvel will be able to do that. Um, also, we saw a lot of sequels this year, but I guess it's like that every year. Um, it's Chapter 2. We had all the Marvel movies. We had Jumanji, The Next Level, another John Wick <laughs> movie. So lots of sequels, sequels, sequels. Dude, John Wick, though, like when it comes to sequels, it, it's kind of hard it, it, for John Wick to be in a kind of an original story. To make a sequel seems like a hard act to follow. But man, the second and third one were, were still phenomenal. I love the John Wick series yeah, right now. They're all really, really great. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's just my opinion. I mean, for coming from me, I don't know if you guys like John Wick, but I, I love John Wick. I do love it, but I think the the body count is getting a little out of control these days. <laughs> it's an but, action uh, film. I mean, you can't give it true. that. It's an action film, but he's doing I, I think it, they like, call it action a, ballet. Yes, yes. sure. <laughs> yeah, I like that action ballet. That sounds very cool. And of course, speaking of sequels, we had the best sequel of the year, Rambo: Last Blood, <laughs> the oh, sequel that nobody wanted, came out <laughs> this year. I don't know if you guys saw it. I did not see it. And no, you I, didn't, see I it. didn't. No. Yeah, this was this is also the year that uh, Netflix uh, really made its mark. They had a lot of really great films come out, and it's getting a lot of awards. Love, Irishman, Marriage Story. There's the Eddie Murphy yes. movie, um, uh, Dolomite is my name. That also was released. So. What do you guys think? Do you think Netflix will be a player for, for years to come? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think especially with, um, maybe it seems like they're pursuing those, not just for prestige, but maybe there's like a, a market for, you know, not just series, but also films. And all these streaming platforms, like, you know, the, the way that um, they mark success is different than box office. It's no right. longer how many tickets are sold. It's how many subscribers come onto the platform and how do we keep them and maintain that? Also, another big thing that happened this year was uh, Disney acquired uh, 20th Century Fox. That basically, I think, turned Disney into a, a sort of monopoly. So, I, mean, <laughs> I, I have to agree with you. I man, Disney is owning up everything. Well, they're actually eating up everything, like all the companies and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, but I mean, I think Disney does a good job, you know, um, getting good quality content out of their properties. So, you know. The the jury the the jury is out, but I'm hoping for for uh, you know better X Men movies. Uh, hopefully, another Fantastic Four movie coming out soon. That should be a lot of fun. But if they fail the next Fantastic Four movies, does that mean that you've lost the loyalty to Disney, or do you have lost faith in Disney? 
Uh, I don't know. I don't think they'll fail, actually. <laughs> they, I mean, there was the Han Solo fail. story with Star Wars. There oh, yeah. was. Well, I mean, I, will, I enjoyed I it, but it didn't bad. do well. But I feel like uh, Disney just lets Kevin Feige have his way. So, you know, if he takes over producing for uh, the next Fantastic Four movie, uh, I'm hoping for something really, really good. Yeah. We can only hope. All right. So moving on into our top 10 lists here, want to offer you all a very brief disclaimer to our listeners out there. We have just started this podcast, so uh, we don't get screeners or invitations to watch movies in advance. All of the movies that show up on our list, we pay to watch them out of our own pockets. Why? Because we love movies. So I want to personally thank Steve-O and Will for their dedication this past week. I feel like they've crammed in movie after movie after movie, sometimes traveling long distances to do so. Will, I believe you um, traveled from uh, Corona all the way up to Century City to watch 1917. Is that right? It was it was well worth it. No, I'm yeah. telling you, I, I'm so glad that when you told me that, because I knew it released the, the 25th, but when you, when you told me it was in a select theaters, I was like... Okay, now I'm I'm doing this, and and it was, it was well worth it for sure. Yeah, and like Steve, I I think I literally you're texting me. Oh, I got this movie, this movie, this movie, and I'm gonna try to get watch this one later, and I'm gonna watch these like three or four movies tomorrow. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> you yeah, give you a are, lot of homework, Myron. Yeah. You got a yeah. you give us a lot of homework to do. No, well, I, I didn't. I didn't mean you had to watch all the movies. So to our listeners out there, teasing. yeah, I, I gave them a list of films, and basically said these are some you know probably better movies that have come out or are coming out. So if you can squeeze them in, I'm sure it'll help you have a more well informed list so uh, yeah i didn't know that they're gonna literally go watch all of them <laughs> but i think well, they, they it, almost did <laughs> it was just hard to like try to get a top 10 list you know because the way yeah. i consume films it's not like i you know i have to consume everything in one year it's more yeah. um there might be things that i missed like in a couple years prior that i'm like oh yeah i still need to watch this movie and that movie so when it came down to just the top 10 for this year i realized i was kind of short actually and so i had to keep watching films to try to fill out this list so that was an interesting exercise. I didn't realize that that must be what it must be like as a an academy voter, you know, You're getting all these screeners <laughs> know, right? are like, oh, what's my list? Oh, I don't know, you know. All right. So you guys ready to get this, get the show on the road, get things Let's started? Let's do it. Let's get do it. All going. right. Number 10 movie. So first you, steve what is your number 10 film? All right. So my number 10 film is The Souvenir by Joanna Hogg. Um, just a quick synopsis, it's about a film student in the 1980s who uh, learns who she is while going through film school and also through her tumultuous relationship with her uh, boyfriend. I've got nowhere left to go. <laughs> Do you think she suspects that you creeped down to our bed? Hmm? I thought we'd put Anthony down the end. It's not that kind of relationship anyway, is it? If she does, that was an amazing performance. Very special, Jenny. No, I don't think I am. Oh, no, you don't think you are. Very normal, really. You're not normal at all. Uh, I, I liked it because, like, it kind of reminded me of, um, I don't know if you've seen Christopher Nolan's first film, The Following. Yes. But there was, like, a, a very, like, um, voyeuristic type feel to the film. And it's, like, middle class um, English, pe- English folk and... Uh, it's just like, you know, being in the flats and it's arranged so differently than it is in the States. And so it gave me that that real, you know, similar vibe to the following. But in terms of the character, it reminded me of um, Lost in Translation, Scarlett Johansson's character, oh, uh, wow. where they're kind of lost, you know, and just the sense of like finding who you are. Uh, it, maybe I'm biased because when I went to film school, a lot of my classmates, not a lot, but like quite a few of them, you could tell they were kind of figuring themselves out. You know, they didn't know. Mm-hmm what kind of films they wanted to make or even what they wanted to do in film. And so mm-hmm. it was just this kind of, and also it's such, a, such an intense program and um, the uh, your personal life, balancing that with film school life and some folks dropped out of film school a little bit to focus more on their personal life. It was really interesting slice of life that um, unlike, you know, um, other films where the director is an established director as a character, like Marriage Story. <laughs> it was interesting that this was in a part of a person's life where they're kind of going through a quarter-life crisis. And mm. so it was really compelling from, from that standpoint, I thought. Got it. Now, um, I haven't caught up with this one. Where can uh, our, our listeners watch this movie? Uh, I think I saw this one on Hulu. And if not, then you could probably rent it through Amazon Prime. Okay. Streaming services, man. Streaming yeah. services. It made there it so it much easier. 
Well, thanks for that recommendation. I'm going to be sure to check that film out. Uh, what is your number 10 film, Will? My number 10 is The Irishman. It was long, yes. But I just appreciated so much of Scorsese's creating and having the power to film a story that he solely wanted to create regardless of length. If you watch the Netflix show of Roundtable for uh, The Irishman with Scorsese, Pesci, Pacino, and De Niro, like he basically were like talking about the length and he said like it was because I was able to make it the way how I wanted to tell it, which I which I thought was great. Like to me, I actually got to see an actual director doing exactly what he wanted when he has the money to do it. Was the Barry Maldemorum. Gone, huh? Yeah. Tu vi una rege come te ha insegnato a parlare l'italiano. In Italia la guerra. Eh, dove? Salerno. Anzio. Eh, Sicilia. Vicino Catania. Catania? Lo sono di Catania. Eh, sì. <laughs> Pensavo che tu hai un accento come Catania. <laughs> It was beautifully shot and well-directed and that embraced nostalgia and melancholy rather than frenetic energy that most mob films have with, you know, the, the drugs and all the partying and the killing. This biopic tells the story of Frank Sheeran with his involvement of Russell Buffalino and his Pennsylvania crime family. Uh, Sheeran works his way up to the ranks, becoming a top hitman, and also goes to work for Jimmy Hoffa, a powerful teamster tied to organized crime. I mean... I am a big fan of biopics, and so this, uh, although long, I just was so fascinated with the amount of detail and all the information of what really went on during that time. And even more so, it was so cool to also talk to uh, some friends who actually had grandparents who were Teamsters and were part of that union and, and, and being able to hear their actual story from what they've heard from their grandparents. And I was like, holy crap, that is crazy. Like my barber's grandfather was a Teamster and, and he was like talking about it. And I was just like, this is so crazy seeing this in real life, you know, hearing this real stuff in real life. So that's my number 10. That's great. It's mm -hmm. also on Obama's list. I just want to point that out. Yeah. He somehow <laughs> found the time to yes. watch it. So Obama's list it's which in is good being company. shared by many right now. <laughs> Wait, what? What is yes. this Obama's list? No, Obama made a list of uh, top 10 films. Not top 10, but just a list of best films and best shows. And he tweeted oh, it out. And people have been sharing it. So yeah, yeah. Uh, No Marvel films, though, or Star yeah, Wars. No Marvel but. films. So, Steve-O, um, I mean, when uh, Will and I reviewed The Irishman, uh, you heard our thoughts on it. What was your thoughts on this film? Uh, I actually haven't found the time to watch it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Because at the end here, you know, it's like <laughs> I have to do the the math of how many movies I can see, and I can knock out two or three in one Irishman. So yes, yes. <laughs> Going back to he hasn't found the time uh, because this film takes up too much of his time. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way of saying. And you know, I'll be honest with you. I think I uh, should have given this movie. Uh, a more of a proper watch. There are a lot of people out there that actually said they were disappointed by the film, but a lot of it had to do with the circumstances and the context of when they were watching it. So, you know, this came out right around Thanksgiving. If you had like family staying over and they were walking in and out of the room, or if you're trying to digest the film on multiple views, it what I hear is that it kind of takes away from the effect of it. So maybe I just need to give it another watch. I don't know. Good point, Myron. Good point. I'm glad you observed that. I'm glad. Yes. 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 Will, you are well, right. And I am wrong. <laughs> with that said, Myron, what is your number 10? My number 10 film is Ford versus Ferrari, um, directed really? by James Bengal. Yeah. What the heck? Number 10? Yeah. That would have been yeah. higher than that. Okay, go on. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there are a lot of great movies that we saw, yeah. you know, one of which I literally just watched in the 11th hour, which kind of pushed this down the list a little bit. This film tells the story of the Ford Motor Company's quest to be Enzo Ferrari in the 24-hour race at Le Mans. And, uh, you know, when I think of James Mangold, uh, I think of someone who's not so much of an auteur per se, but just as a solid storyteller that knows how to uh, utilize his actors um, to tell the story and knows how to frame shots and just basically does a solid, great job as a storyteller. In the last three years, you and your marketing team have presided over the worst sales slump in U.S. history. Why exactly should Mr. Ford listen to you? Because we've been thinking wrong. 
Ferrari. Now they've won four out of the last five Le Mans. We need to think like Ferrari. Ferrari makes fewer cars in a year than we make in a day. <laughs> we spend more on toilet paper than they do on their entire output. You want us to think like them. Enzo Ferrari will go down in history as the greatest car manufacturer of all time. Why? Is it because he built the most cars? It's because of what his cars mean. Victory. Ferrari wins at Le Mans. People, they, they want some of that victory. This movie had some wonderful performances from both Matt Damon and, of course, Christian Bale. I really love the family scenes in this film, um, specifically between uh, you know Christian Bale's character and his uh, wife, played by Katrina Balfe, and also the scenes that he has with his son, um, played by Noah Jupe. Um, really great moments here, and you really see the the close knit family that yes, uh, that his completely. character had. The race scenes really stood out as well. Um, it really puts you in the seat of the driver, and you're really able to see how dangerous uh, it is what they're doing out there, and uh, just really enjoyed this film overall. So I had to say, one. Christian Bale's character, like as Ken Miles and the wife, yeah, they were like a power couple. I love the chemistry. Yeah, so yeah. good. They were really, really great. So moving on to our number nine picks. Will, what is your number nine? So my number nine is Parasite, uh, directed by Bong Joon-ho. This is a black comedy thriller and definitely had to make it to my top ten because this ensemble cast had amazing chemistry and the story itself had great momentum, keeping you wondering where it was going next. I also enjoyed how the majority and major parts of the story was set in the wealthy family's home. Uh, I think uh, Pong Juno like used the space so well to frame the uh, to frame the compositions and made wise choices to have that home a part of the story as well. I'm deadly serious. 믿는 사람 소개로 연결 연결 이게 베스트인 것 같아요. 일종의 뭐랄까 믿음의 벨트. 요게 이거들은 아. 그리고 여, 여기가 그러니까 요건 이제 터치로 하는 것 같은데. 아, 터치가 아니고 뭐, 이 이거 뭐 돌리라 그러는 것 같은데. 야 예. 오. <웃음> It's interesting because like when it comes to Korean films, I've watched a handful, but nothing that really. Became very memorable for me. This one, it was just to me out of the box and clever and creepy and thrilling. It was so much fun to watch, and I am just glad that you, Myron, actually made us have us have a podcast where we talk and watch it because. Man, I, I just thought, uh, we'll see, you know, Korean film, foreign, like Korean films. I don't know. It's always been up in the air for me, normally kind of a letdown. But this one was like, holy crap, it surprised me. So, yep. Great choice. I think this might be the first film that all three of us have seen, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Is that yeah. Right? No, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's on my list cool. too, a little higher, but yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm sorry, so. steve but yeah. <laughs> So it's higher in Steve's list, and you'll probably see it on mine a little bit later as well. Uh, brings us to our next number nine. Steve, what's your pick? So I'm going to go with Marvel on this one. Um, hey. Of the Marvel ones, I don't know. I like the Spider-Man Far From Home film. Um, hmm. I think maybe because like we got past the whole Infinity War saga, so it felt like a fresh reboot in a way. And hmm. uh, I like that, you know, um, just a brief synopsis, Peter Parker's trying to diminish his role as Spider-Man. And so he goes abroad to Venice with his classmates and uh, in the hopes of rekindling his relationship with MJ. But, uh, you know, stuff happens, Mysterio. And uh, he has to, you know, figure out to pick up the mantle of the Avengers. You look really pretty. Therefore, I have value? No. No, that's not what I meant at all. I was just... I'm messing with you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You look pretty, too. Oh, my gosh, opera glasses. So cute. Can I... Want to go in on a pair? You mean let's sit next to each other? Yeah. Parker, are you in position? No. Okay, no. Why the hell not? You don't want to sit Parker, next to me here? No, you, you just don't want to pick us. <laughs> I didn't mean that. I, uh, uh, if you go ahead, I'll go grab us a pair. Zendaya really shined in this film. She really came out. Um, her portrayal of MJ, it was just so much more um, well-defined and, and more robust than the previous film. 
And I just loved how she's a murderino. You know, she's like huge into serial killers and her favorite murder is, uh, you know, that she has one. And it, it really gave a different perspective than just the goody two-shoe, like, you know, cookie cutter, like, uh, babe in the previous Spider-Man movies, you know, where right. Mary Jane's character is just, it's so flat. You know, it's an op she's an object to be acquired versus in this in this Spider-Man, MJ is, you know, trying to figure out who Spider-Man is. And so she's mm -hmm. got her own objectives and uh, her own reasons for liking him other than it is written. It's definitely a departure. But I feel like, you know, with uh, all these big properties where fans are hugely passionate about staying true to the source material, whether it be like Star Wars or like Lord of the Rings, I feel like Marvel has earned the confidence of its fans to be able to um kind of back away from the norm and kind of change things up. So I appreciate how they changed MJ's character a little bit. And, you know, they made her an awkward teen, which was interesting, different. And, but Super interesting. awkward yeah. teen. Because they're all yeah. awkward. And that's what's yeah. great about it. Um, I yeah. have to say, this is not my favorite Spider-Man movie. My favorite is definitely uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. That uh, is by far oh, my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not this yeah. year, so. <laughs> well, what about you now? My uh, number nine film is a film called Booksmart, which was uh, directed by Olivia Wilde. It was her directorial debut. So this film tells the story of two best friends that realize they should have worked less and played more in high school. And to make up for lost time, the girls cram four years of fun or try to cram four years of fun into one night. Wait, are you guys talking about Molly Davidson? Yeah. yeah. That girl is so weird. She always acts like she's like 40. I wish she was fucking 40, man. Women in their 40s know themselves. <laughs> she's cute. You know, yeah, I give her that, but she'd probably make you quiz on her SAT analogies while you fuck her. Dude, no, her vagina's probably stuffed with diplomas. How much you want to bet? That shit's like a filing cabinet down there. <laughs> well, I got no problem with a filing cabinet. I would make passionate sex to Molly Davidson. Really? Yeah, I'd just put it back over her personality. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like a butter face for personality. A oh. butter personality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so bad. That's yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Yeah. What? So what I really loved about this film is it starts and we think it's like any other high school movie with all the obvious archetypes, like, you know, the druggie, uh, the stoner, the jock, uh, the ditzy girl, the easy girl, things like that. But then we realize that the film is really about the complexities and three dimensionalities that make us all who we are. Uh, no one is really as they seem. Um, there are some great performances by uh, Beanie Feldstein, whom we last saw in Lady Bird. She's also Jonah Hill's sister. Uh, yeah, they have a different last name, but people are slowly figuring out that they're siblings. And then there's another standout performance by Caitlin Deaver that plays a girl just coming to terms with her sexuality. She's awkward. She's lovable. She's cool. She's smart. She was just really, really great in this film. The movie is both laugh out loud funny and at the same time poignant. And it explores all those awkward moments that come along with growing up. I really, really highly recommend it. It's a great watch. In the beginning, how you were explaining uh, like the jock the basket case all that stuff i thought is this a modernized version of the breakfast club like <laughs> <laughs> it kind of yeah i have to say they're similar in some sense but not really in tone because this is like a flat out comedy right so, right okay yeah yeah, yeah. and I, i'd say that uh even breakfast club like it, it played with the stereotypes it stayed within the stereotype silos completely. you know yeah. this one like this it's completely flipped and so the stereotypes don't exist the way that you think it should and so that's why I felt fresh. Right, right, right. Breaking and it's it, definitely right. higher on my list. I'll talk more about it, but yeah. Nice. Good pick, Myron. Good pick. We're going to take a little bit of a break from our top 10 list. We're going to go ahead and hand out our first end of the year award. And this is for funniest scene of the year. So uh, I want to go ahead and back to you, Steve-O. What is your funniest scene of the year? Sure. My favorite funny scene of the year, funniest scene of the year, is uh, from the movie Last Black Man of San Francisco. So there's a scene where Jimmy and his uh, best friend, Mont, um, they're uh, two black dudes that used to live in San Francisco, but got pushed out through gentrification. And uh, they keep visiting his grandfather's home because he believes that his grandfather built this house with his own hands. And so he's really attached to it. And so he's waiting at the bus stop to, you know, take a ride back home to Oakland when um, there's a uh, an elderly nudist comes in and sits down on the bus bench next to him. And at first, Jimmy's kind of like, what's this guy's deal? But then a trolley full of white frat boys pulls up 
and sees the nudist and starts like, you know, uh, mocking him and hollering at him. And as the trolley continues to move on, both Jimmy and the nudist are kind of appalled by the trolley of obnoxious frat guys. And then the, uh, the elderly nudist then turns to Jimmy and says, This city. I already know, bro. And it was just a hilarious <laughs> scene. I laughed out loud because there's this elderly nudist is completely nude, and they show everything, by the way. Yes. And he's offended by this trolley of, you know, uh, white fat dudes getting drunk and making a scene. So uh, you left out one little detail, which I thought really made the scene hilarious, is uh, this nudist, right before he sits down on the bus bench, he lays out like a napkin so his butt doesn't have yes. to touch the, the, <laughs> the seat. So he's a nudist, but he's he's very sanitary. Yeah. And the questions he asks is like, so mundane, like, so uh, you've been sitting here long? Uh, when's the, has the bus been by? You know, it, completely ignoring the fact that he's completely naked, sitting on some napkins. <laughs> so what's funny, Steve, oh, I told you about this uh, earlier today, was uh, that scene was literally the moment where I almost turned the movie off because I was so shocked. I was like, okay, someone needs to warn me before I see another dude's junk just hanging out there. <laughs> no, but it, it, I, thinking about it after and I kept watching the movie, I was like, okay, this is actually a, a pretty funny, pretty ironic scene. So I dig it. I dig it. All right, what's your... <laughs> What's your uh, funniest scene of the year, Will? So my favorite funny scene uh, comes from Peanut Butter Falcon. And it's the scene in the cornfield uh, where Tyler, uh, played by Shia LaBeouf, uh, tells Zach. And, and Zachary is a, uh, is actually uh, a guy with Down syndrome. Uh, but he tells him a few rules as he decides to help uh, Zach reach his destination to his favorite wrestler, Saltwater Redneck School of Wrestling. And Tyler's first rule is to not slow him down. And there's a moment where as Tyler's walking away and Zach's treading right be like behind him, he's slowing him down. And, and then Tyler turns around and sees the distance and walks up to Zach and goes, what did I asked, what did I tell you? What's number, what's new, what's rule number one? You are in charge. Exactly. Come on. Hey, what's rule number one? What's rule number one? Party? No, not party. No, it's not party. <laughs> we laughed so loud in the theater that my girlfriend was like trying to tell me to hush. Like it was, it's it's such an innocence. It's 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 funny, but it was so endearing because like this this just it was just an amazing moment where. Yeah, I mean, what do you expect? You can't expect like you know that like him to remember everything because he just he just he just sees where he's going. He knows where he wants to go, and man, it it, it was just a funny scene. I don't, it was just so funny. So that was that was mine. Yeah, yeah, it's been on my <laughs> list to watch. I've actually already purchased it on iTunes, so oh, I, I just need it. to find the time to watch it. Yeah, no, oh, don't worry, don't worry. It won't take up too much of your time, like uh, the Irishman. <laughs> Yeah, half an so, Irishman. Yeah, how many Irishmen? Like 0. 0.25 Irishmen? Yeah. <laughs> 0. 0.25 <laughs> Irishmen, yes. Yes, I forgot we were, we were speaking Irishman. Um, so what about you then, Myron? My funniest scene of the year comes from It Chapter 2. It is the Chinese restaurant scene. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, to give you guys a little backstory, uh, so 27 years after um, their first encounter with Pennywise, the Dairy Seven, as uh, they're often referred to, uh, they get together uh, at a restaurant. It's the first time they've seen each other in a really, really long time. And it's awkward at first, and none of them really want to be there because they know why they're there. It's They're dreading it, you know? But uh, the director and the writer, uh, through a very well-written scene, reestablishes the bond between friends, um, and they use laughter as a tool. So wait, Eddie, you got married? Yo, why is it so fucking funny, dickwad? What, to like a woman? Fuck you, bro. <laughs> Fuck you! All right, what about you, trash mouth? You married? There's no way yeah, so Rich is so married. No, I got nope. married. Richie, I don't believe it. When? Did you not hear this? No. Oh, you know I got married? No. Yeah, no, me and your mom are very, very happy right now. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> he totally fell for it. <laughs> Fuck it. She's very sweet. Sometimes she, she'll put her arm around me, and she'll whisper to me, and she'll go, <laughs> we all get it. My mom is a great big fat person. Oh, no. He 
hilarious. Bill Hader really stars in this scene. I don't know how much of his jokes were scripted or how much of it was ad-libbed, but really, literally everyone in the scene is like in stitches as they crack up at jokes and as they're, uh, you know, kind of going back and uh, reminiscing about old times. And the laughter in the scene is so real. It feels like we are at dinner with them. And, you know, slowly their defense is start to come down and they almost forget why they've you know gathered together after, after such a long time and you know we were enjoying the moment with them and of course uh, you know we're quickly reminded as to why they're all together when uh, some you know crazy eerie stuff starts happening um, you know in the middle of the scene so going back to our top 10 list we are up to number eight so Steve why don't you go ahead and let us know what is your number eight film of the year my number eight film is us. The reason I loved Us was that it's just such a memorable film in terms of um, what they were trying to say. I think with um, the visuals, Peter Luanga was phenomenal in it. And um, just the idea of like others, you know, versions of ourselves, like quite literally in in some aspects. Uh, I just loved how um, the juxtaposition played out. And um, also my buddy Mike G DP'd it. So I'm not biased about that, but it looked great. He did a phenomenal (laughs) job. Holy cow. Can't believe how big Dave got. Did you hear Gabe got a boat? Come on, Daddy! Ah, ah. He's kidding, right? He's not kidding. Hey, I think it's vodka o'clock. Oh, yeah. Where's Jason? Jason! Jason! Where were you? I didn't know if you were lost. Stick with me, and I'll keep you safe. Like, I, I don't know how much to give away with, you know, our, our list here, but... Um, there, there, yeah, I mean, there are a co- couple plot twists that I was kind of like, it felt like it was a little too far, you know, but overall, I just love this high concept horror that uh, is kind of getting a resurgence with Jordan Peele, mm-hmm. you know, and I just love that genre where you could say so much with horror and have almost like a sci-fi twist to it. You know, it's not just one genre. It's not just mm-hmm. a slasher anymore. Yeah. There's intelligence to it. I mean... I don't know about you guys. I would be very hard pressed to find a director whose first two films were both critically loved and loved by the audiences and made as much money as his films did. It's like Spielberg or Hitchcock, you know, it's crazy that oh, this totally guy, Hitchcock. Yeah. Totally Hitchcock yeah. for sure. And this guy literally started on a comedy central TV show. It just yeah. blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Key and Peele, like one of my favorite, like comedian, like comedy shows. And yet all of a sudden Jordan Peele comes out with this. I'm just like, who the frick are you, Jordan? Like, holy yeah. crap. Yeah. And I-, I think it has to do with just like, you know, coming from a different perspective, you know, having been raised in America, different from the majority of film directors out there that have made horror in the past. I'm not to be that, not to say that, you know, diversity is the main reason why Jordan Peele's films stick out. But I just think that coming from a different perspective, it allows a different lens to portray horror in a different way. And I think the reason why Jordan Peele is so great at it is that despite his perspective, he made it very universal. And so anyone from anywhere can come along on the ride. Mm-hmm. And his films are, you know, they're horror and there's always so many layers weaved in that kind of captures our imagination. It's never just about the scare, you know, which is really, really great. Well, my number eight film is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Um, as I was watching this film, I really felt like this was his love letter to the golden age of Hollywood. It takes place in 1969, you know, right as things were ending and kind of things started to change um, in, you know, in Hollywood. And uh, Leonardo DiCaprio plays a faded television actor and Brad Pitt plays a stunt double. And together they strive to achieve fame and success in the film industry. Oh, and by the way, <clears throat> Beaner Bronco Buster? Yeah. Where the hell did that come from? <laughs> improv. <laughs> that was wonderful. It was just, that was a triple alliterative improv. Don't hear those too often. <laughs> okay, all right. we're we all good. Don't need to go again. No, we're done. That was fantastic. All right. Okay, moving on. We're in the bordello. Next setup. That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. And along with the humor of of many of the scenes, um, they're literally laugh out loud funny. There's a slow burn underneath it all that keeps us paying attention to what at times feels like a, a I would maybe this is the wrong word, but I would say almost a plotless film. Uh, every scene is great, well acted. Uh, you're laughing, you're engaged, but you know at some point we start to wonder, um, you know, where is this film going? But you know it's going somewhere because you know you know you're ha- you're in the hands of a really really great director. Um, 
you know, and all the setup does pay off at the end where uh, Tarantino, just like as he did in Inglorious Bastards, rewrites history. So, uh, you know, and he does it in a very satisfying manner. That's all I'll say about the end. And say what you want about the controversy. I know a lot of people were upset about the depiction of Bruce Lee in the film. And also they were upset about how the whole Manson story was kind of changed. Um, but uh, when you're watching this film, you know you're, you're really in the hands of a master storyteller. And Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt were absolutely hilarious together. So that is my number eight pick. What's your number eight pick, Will? I, it is exactly the same. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I just loved how the synopsis was literally not that it was misleading but as tarantino does right it's just there's a bigger picture to this story and honestly i thought who they chose for brett for um uh, bruce lee was great i loved it <laughs> i loved mike mo uh, mike mo i think his last name is mo he did great his his, his like disposition his his body language like everything that he as yes as bruce lee i was like dude they got a winner here <laughs> like what an amazing yeah. imitation of bruce lee was brilliantly done maybe we'll and see mo of mike in the future <laughs> so, sorry, wow okay i should have seen that coming <laughs> no uh not to neg on the film it's not on my my list because uh the Sharon Tate thing kind of bothered me in the sense of the ending, like the message to me, it felt like he was saying, if you're rich and beautiful, you know, you'll be okay. Hmm. That's kind of the, you know, but I know that's not probably what he was going for. I think he was just trying to switch it up at the very end. But what bothered me about it was that uh, he had such an opportunity to do something with Sharon Tate's character that would have been very Tarantino-esque. Like, he usually has very strong uh, female characters, like Uma Thurman's character in the Kill Bill mm -hmm. series, and all the female characters in Kill Bill. And I just felt like it was like a lost opportunity. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, it felt like uh, a nostalgia piece for sure, but it felt like it was, um, what's it called? Like, he was on autopilot a little bit, which is still amazing because, like, I still think this film was pretty phenomenal, phenomenal in all the scenes that... Uh, and all the characters and the casting, and it's still a phenomenal thing to watch. But and if you look at it from the scope of all the Tarantino films, I feel like this is one of his weaker ones. But that's just me negging. Well, that's great insight. I yeah. mean, I just watch Tarantino films because I'm waiting for the freaking explosion to happen. Not and not in the sense of like bombs and whatnot, but like when when sh hits the fan, you know, like that was like right when I saw that happening. I'm like, oh my goodness. All right. So moving on down the list. The anti-Jeffersons were moving on down. All right, forget that joke. Anyway, Will. <laughs> uh, if anyone has any comments, concerns, please email to uh, Myron. I am, email. I am psychologically stable. Don't worry. Anyway, all right. <laughs> Will, what is your number seven choice? So my number seven is actually from the DC universe, Shazam. I literally had low expectations with Zachary Levi, but I'm so glad I was wrong. Uh, I think, I believe this is one of DC's strongest films and one of my favorite films from them, even though they don't really have a strong list of great movies in comparison to Marvel, for sure. Uh, this classic comic book story tells about a newly fostered young boy named Billy Batson in search of his mother instead finds himself being chosen as a new champion of heroes and soon gaining a powerful enemy. What I love is that when uh, a comic book film can embrace the campiness and, and bring balance to the 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 story itself when it's especially if it's live action and i think that shazam did a perfect job of that because down to the outfit i loved it and i loved how uh zachary levi as shazam embraced it and just kind of made it work and also with the other heroes not not going to spoil anything else of that if you haven't seen it yet it was just awesome and it was such a fun ride Bullet immunity. You have bullet immunity. Bulletproof. <laughs> Today is December 8th, and this is video proof of authenticity. Shoot him again. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Here, here, here. Go. Both of you. Come on. Go to town. <laughs> 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 
Wait, 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 we still don't know if the suit is bulletproof or if you are. Shoot him in the face. Shoot me in the face. In the face? Mayo is a huge fan of the director, still am. Uh, he directed the third Annabelle movie, and literally every movie that he uh, directs, uh, first film I saw of his was Lights Out. Second was Annabelle, and this is his third film, but he really does a phenomenal job. He directs like the crap out of that script, and he is... He has always done a great job, you know, regardless of the size of, of the budget. So I can't, I can't wait to see what he does next uh, with the Shazam sequel. So Steve-O, moving on to you, what is your number seven film? My number seven film is Marriage Story. Um, it is a story about divorce, um, starring Adam Driver and um, Scarlett Johansson. Hi. Hi. Where's Henry? Uh, he's pooping. Hi, Henry. Is this couch still open? Yeah. I got off the plane to a text, but don't tell anyone yet. It's still a secret. Okay. I want a MacArthur Grant. <gasps> Charlie! Oh my god, that's great! Congratulations! <laughs> I'll say it because you can't. It's the genius grant. You're a genius. Oh, I'm really happy for you. You deserve it. That's yours too. We did all of this together. Thank you, but it's yours, Charlie. You enjoy it. I know we reviewed this film, and like, uh, I had some issues with it, like, uh, I felt like it was kind of kind of derivative and cliche in a, in a lot of places, but I just could not ignore the performances, you know, and that's why I made it to my list. I couldn't ignore that, um, like that that one uh, tracking shot of Scarlett's character as she's you know in the uh, the lawyer's office and she's walking into the bathroom and back and forth. I couldn't ignore that. I couldn't ignore um, Lord Lord Dern and uh, Ray Liotta. Uh, their performances I thought was just so amazing. And so overall, I think these performances and the fact that Noah Baumbach let their his actors live in the space, it just really elevated the film for me. Yeah, great, great choice. You're going to definitely see that on my list a little bit later as well. <laughs> nice. So, a little depressing, but still. I was a little surprised to see this on your list, to be quite honest, because um, I know you had some issues with kind of how L.A. people were portrayed versus New York people. And yeah, you mentioned how it was cliche, but I'm really happy to see that in major lists here. <laughs> yeah, you just can't ignore it. It's just one of those films. That's how you know it's a good film. All right. Well, my number seven film is Avengers Endgame. No summary needed here. The movie is the culmination of 22 films in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And somehow they literally captured lightning in a bottle. And they actually, with everyone's high expectations, I really feel like they managed to meet those expectations. This film isn't just a blockbuster with, you know, two dimensional characters going from action scene to action scene. The Russo brothers really take care with each scene and each character. I mean, that first scene in the film, um, in the previous movie, Avengers Infinity War, we don't really see uh, any of Martin, um, you know, Jeremy Renner's character at all, but he's the first person we meet in uh, Endgame. And we see him just, you know, with his family. We see that he's basically stuck on house arrest for things that he did during Civil War. And then just the camera work, everything is handheld, very raw and gritty. And we see what happens to his family from his perspective. And then we get that sense of loss. And we're quickly reminded, you know, after about a year um, away from, from the Avengers that, uh, you know, people are really struggling. People lost loved ones. And it kind of takes this film from that angle. And the first, I would say, 30, 45 minutes is just people dealing with loss. And uh, it's a very interesting take on a blockbuster film. And that's it. That's those little brave baby steps we got to take to try and become whole again, try and find purpose. I went in the ice in 45 right after I met the love of my life. I woke up 70 years later. You got to move on. You got to move on. The world is in our hands. It's left to us, guys. And we got to do something with it. Otherwise, Thanos should have killed all of us. Even that group therapy scene um, where uh, Steve Rogers is leading a group of people who is dealing with their losses after the snap. Um, you know, that was a, a really great scene as well. And I really love how this was a almost like a love letter to uh, past Marvel films. Um, 
it's kind of like a greatest hits, I guess you could say, because, uh, you know, very much like in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban or Back to the Future 2, they go back and revisit scenes that took place earlier in the films. Um, and it has a lot of fun doing so. So uh, I know some people had some issues. People felt like, oh, they're just rehashing old storylines. But I really felt like the the take on it was fresh. Um, really, really had a great time with this. And the end was just so satisfying. It was emotional. I got chills. Um, I was on the edge of my seat. And it was just a fitting goodbye to um, the cinematic universe as we know it. And also a fitting goodbye, spoiler alert, to Tony Stark, who started it all. So that is my number seven film. All right, taking another uh, little mini break here from the uh, list that we're going through. I wanted to give out our next end of the year award. So this one is for most emotional scene of the year. Um, I wanted to ask you, Steve, to go ahead and give yours first. Sure. Uh, My um, most emotional scene of the year has to be from The Farewell. Uh, I've seen it many times so far. And uh, it's the the final moment where Aquafina's character says goodbye to her grandma. And I don't know if I should give away the film or not, but... Uh, there's a little bit of um, you know uh, a con game going on, and uh, the the farewell, the goodbye at the ending, it has more of a meaning than just saying goodbye to her grandma, you know, from her visit, and um, the fact that it's so loaded in that sense, and you know there there's something going on that she can't tell her. It, it was a really poignant scene. I thought it was really emotional. Yeah, just the fact that the grandmother doesn't know that she's dying and her entire family is trying not to let her know kind of really adds that extra layer, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so she's saying goodbye, but she can't say, you know, tell her why that this is the last time she's say goodbye. Yeah. Right. And it really so, yeah. lets Aquafina kind of internalize that, that, um, that angst and that, and those mm-hmm. feelings of sadness that she can't even really express outwardly, which I thought was really, yeah. really intense. And, uh, yeah, totally. a lot with that there. Yeah. All right. Very cool. How about you, uh, Will, what is your, uh, most emotional scene of the year? Oh man. I, this one was a bit of a tough one only because, I literally was going back between uh, 1917 and Peanut Butter Falcon, but I'm going to save 1917 a little bit later uh, and go with Peanut Butter Falcon. It was an evening scene on the beach where they talk about heroes and Zach uh, thinks he's not a hero because, um, but a bad guy. He thinks he's a bad guy because his family left him due to his mental condition. Um, however, Tyler tells him that good guys get left too, and it's it's not about wearing a mask or the cape they wear, uh, but the but the heart. And he reinforces that Zach has a good guy heart. I I want to be personal wrestler, and I am a bad guy. Why do you want to be a bad guy? Because. My family left me. It don't make you a bad guy. Good guys get left too, Zach. Ain't about no silly laugh or wearing black and eyeshadow and shit. It had nothing to do with that. It has to do with what's in here, in your heart. You got a good guy heart. You can't do shit about it. That's just who you are. You're a hero. It was such a great scene, and, and and Tyler comes from a background of his character. He comes from nothing as well. He comes from hardship as well, but he but he sees the potential, and he and and he reinforces optimism and all this goodness back to Zach's uh, uh, life. And man, I'm already tearing about it just thinking about it. It was such a great scene. You have to, man, I can't wait for you to yeah. watch it. It was such a oh, great scene. I'm gonna check it out this week. Yeah, for sure. So awesome. Uh, my emotional scene of the year is uh, the final set of scenes in Marriage Story. Um, Charlie, played by Adam Driver, we see him walk into his son's room and his son uncovered a letter that uh, his that his uh, ex-wife uh, wrote to him a while back when they were in, uh, in mediation uh, before they got their divorce. 
the letter is how the movie opens, and in this sense, it's also how it closes. Charlie is self-made. His parents, I only met them once, but he told me there was a lot of alcohol. He moved to New York from Indiana with no safety net, and now he's more a New Yorker than any New Yorker. He's brilliant at creating family out of whoever is around. With the theater company, he casts a spell that made everyone feel included. No one, not even an intern, was unimportant. What's an intern? Uh, it's like a helper, but who isn't paid. Why aren't they paid? They're young. They're learning. You know, Charlie has gone through quite a bit of an emotional journey. He's gone through a divorce, and now he's seeing his son, who I think always had trouble focusing. Um, now he's reading, reading quite a bit better than he was before. So we see that his son's character has actually grown quite a bit. And then uh, for the first time, he uh, hears the words that his ex-wife wrote about him. And, you know, uh, we hear that, you know, Scarlett's character, um, Nicole, is always going to love him no matter what happens. And uh, it's bittersweet. And we see Charlie, his lip starts to quiver and he's holding back the tears. And we see Scarlett's character, Nicole, walk in and they have this... um, very quiet, intimate family moment of just knowing. Um, not much is said there. Um, and this is after the divorce, so it just adds that extra layer of messiness, you know. It's a happy ending, but it's not. And you're and you know, as a as a audience uh member, we were feeling all these different kinds of emotions. So uh yeah, that was my favorite scene of the year. And I'm I'm gonna try to squeeze another scene in there just because I like to cheat is uh my close runner up is at the end of Avengers Endgame. Uh there's that little scene where uh John Favreau, he plays Happy Hogan, is sitting there with Tony Stark's daughter. And then uh, she says, I want a cheeseburger. And <laughs> John Favreau's character says, you can have all the cheeseburgers you want. And it's just this <laughs> this culmination of all these movies. And uh, at the end of it all, we're just seeing how people are trying to carry on with their lives. And we see a daughter that just lost her father for the greater good of the world. And she's trying to process that. And, you know much as any kid would they say something kind of out there but we know inside she's struggling with that grief and she says i want a cheeseburger so powerful stuff that we could easily take for granted in a blockbuster yeah yeah and it's great that john favre said it because he directed the first iron man which started the whole thing exactly oh yeah yeah what a great like full circle yeah our next round of picks is going to be the last for this episode it is our number six picks so uh, let's go ahead and uh, get started with you, Will. What is your number six film of the year? My number six pick is Knives Out by Ryan Johnson. James Bond with a twangy southern accent. Yeah, got me <laughs> laughing. But other than that, like the story was so fun to watch as I love mystery films, you know, like Clue or The Orient Express. Uh, Daniel Craig plays a detective investigating the death of a patriarch of an eccentric combative family. Oh, let me guess. Hey, stop, stop. Hugh Drysdale? Call me Ransom, it's my middle name. Only the help calls me Hugh. Okay, Uh, this is Trooper Wagner. I'm Lieutenant Elliott. Just wanna ask a few questions. Excuse me. Sir, we're officers of the law. You gonna run me in? I don't feel like talking, I'm distraught. Hey, Benny. You want to ask this guy some questions? All right, what is this? What's this arrangement? Mr. Drysdale. CSI KFC? <clears throat> I, I love the balance of, of how every like character had their, their screen time, but more importantly, how Ryan Johnson took a... And I know we talked about this as well on the previous podcast, but I just loved how he took the other side of the perspective with the audience... Uh, were was involved with knowing who the murderer quote unquote you know is or and and just this the twist i I love the twists that took as well in in these film in this film so that's mine number six yeah you'll see this on my list also um in the next episode but uh yeah it really really kept me guessing throughout and i really really love this film as well great choice yeah and that ensemble cast wow i know right right? it's so yeah there was a new york times um like quick editorial piece about 
uh, how he shot that scene in the living room where everyone is there. Mm-hmm. And like having shot like, you know, dinner scenes and whatnot, ensemble scenes are the hardest to shoot. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. it's not just like a two shot and close up, close up. It gets so complicated. So yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, it probably took days to shoot that, I'm guessing, right? Oh, it had to. It had to. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, Steve, what is your number six pick? My number six pick is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Um, it's about Jimmy and his uh, best friend, Mont, who move into Jimmy's old grandfather's house in San Francisco as squatters. They have to face the harsh reality that due to gentrification and the unreasonable price of San Francisco real estate, that uh, he can never return back to his grandfather's home. But you distinguished truth seekers want to know about the real Hepcats who hung out here in the Harlem of the West, where a few of these homes did survive. Like this beauty here, which was built clear back in the 1800s. Before the black thing, this was all Japanese. Till FDR's stormtroopers rounded them up into camps. This house was built in the 1940s. (laughs) Say hi to our neighbor here, everybody. That would actually be about 100 years late for this style. We can see from his gingerbread trim, this was built sometime in the 1850s. Uh, 1946. <laughs> I'm gonna have to disagree with you there, dude, man. No architect in the 1940s was building in this style. That's probably true, but this wasn't built by an architect. My grandfather built this. And so it's an interesting film about gentrification. It explores homelessness and explores uh, what happens to communities when they're displaced from um, from their childhood homes because of uh, just the rising um, real estate market, which is, you know, it down here in Los Angeles, it's happening to us here too. And it, I, I just loved how uh, it took it in a not a very preachy way, you know? A lot of it was really subdued. Hmm. And um, you really got to go along with these two characters that uh, they live in Oakland and um, they're... Everyone around them, their age, uh, they're supposed to be young men in their early 20s. Um, all the other young black men in their neighborhood are, you know, in gangs and stuff like that and, you know, killed by drive-by shootings and whatnot. And so to see these two that are just kind of like off the wall kind of characters, they don't really want to get into that scene, even though they, they're friends with everyone in that scene. And they're just this hope of like, you know, San Francisco is this dreamland, you know, of where his grandfather grew up and built this house and... It, it felt like a love story to San Francisco, but uh, as as they moved in and you see all the the realities that they have to face, it, it's kind of, it gets really sad and and there's a bit of melancholy to it too. And yeah. another thing I want to add is just I love the um, a lot of films these days. I feel like especially with like TV um, generated stuff, you don't really get that sense of location, you know, like this physical geographical mm-hmm. space. But with this film. You definitely got it. You definitely knew when you were in Oakland. You definitely knew when you were in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, it's unique. And I thought the color was really interesting, too. It reminded me yeah. of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Where it's it like super saturated. Yeah, it's very warm and vibrant. I was like, hmm. wow, okay. You know, it really sucked me in right away. All right. My number six film, which I just caught last night, is the film Uncut Gems, directed by the Safdie brothers. Um, I think this is Adam Sandler's best performance by far uh, in his career. So watching him as he plays degenerate gambler Howard Ratner is like the equivalent of driving by a gruesome car accident on the freeway. You want to look away and you're kind of wincing at this man's self-destruction, but something inside you just kind of wants to keep looking and taking the damage. <laughs> How many carrots is this? Good what? Four, five thousand carrots? Three thousand dollars a carrot? I'm not... Why's it got so many colors in it, man? What is this? That's the thing. They say you can see the whole universe in Opal. That's how f***ing old they are. Holy shit. I've been stuff. telling you. That's why I want you to see it. Yo, that's crazy, man. Yeah. From stone to stone. Garnet to stone. You know that. That's a million dollar Opal you're holding. Straight from the Ethiopian Jewish tribe. I mean, this is old school. Middle Earth. 
Um, so in this film, um, Sandler's Ratner is pretty much irredeemable. He's annoying. And at the same time, he's completely lovable. Uh, you want him to succeed in getting out of the mess that he's in. At the same time, you want him to fail, hoping that he might learn something from it all. And it's like he's literally juggling chainsaws in the air. There are multiple debt collectors after him. Uh, he has a wife with three kids. <laughs> he's hiding a mistress in an apartment. And at the same time, he has to deal with Kevin Garnett. <laughs> I know that's a little <laughs> weird. You'll have to watch the movie to figure out how that all plays in. But uh, his performance is a tour de force. Sandler is in almost every scene and you can't take your eyes off him. The Safdie Brothers last film, uh, Good Time with Robert Pattinson, was also kind of like a uh, pulse pounding adrenaline rush. And I think this movie is very similar to that. Uh, but I think there's also a deeper meaning to this film. Uh, to me, the movie really is about America and how we built our riches by capitalizing on people less fortunate than ourselves. And at the same time, we maintain our wealth by creating a larger and larger illusion, which is really just built by doubling down on nothing at all, which is kind of like what the stock market is. You know, it's just like it's built upon a, a belief and a faith in, in a company. But what is that really? You know, and it's, you know, hopefully it's not just a house of cards that'll come falling apart anytime soon, but uh, definitely a lot of food for thought and one hell of a performance. So that is my number six pick. Yeah, I didn't catch that one, but uh, it's definitely on my list. All right. Cool. Same, same. Yeah, you guys caught a lot of films that are definitely on my list of films that I still need to watch. So I'm really glad that we were able to kind of go through these movies because uh, I know for sure I'll be checking out Souvenir and I'll be checking out Peanut Butter Falcon and other films as well. All right, that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for tuning in and, and listening along. If you have any thoughts, comments, or maybe your own top 10 list that you'd like to share, go ahead and send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back next week with a look at our top five films of 2019. So we'll see you then. Thanks. Thanks.